saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David coming at you. We have a special compliance guest with us today. Keep Carl the sound guy in line. God, we could use that kind of help. We have Todd Sipperman. Todd is the principal of Sipperman Compliance Services. Sipperman Compliance Services provides chief compliance officer services Money managers, registered funds, family offices, private equity firms, broker-dealers, regulated fintech companies. Our clients' professionals have significant industry experience, is what Sipperman Services would say. Todd has over 25 years of experience in the investment management financial services industries. He's represented a wide range of investment management clients with a focus on distribution issues facing investment managers and broker-dealers. He previously served as general counsel to SEI Investments, a public mutual fund and financial technology firm, including its $65 billion proprietary mutual fund family. He has also served as general counsel to one of the largest international equity managers. Prior to that, Todd spent several years in private practice on Wall Street representing both buy side and sell side. Cool clients in the investment management capital markets transactions. He is a graduate from University of Pennsylvania Law School and Cornell University, both my old alums. <laughs> or maybe not. I, I thought I knew you there. Yeah. And Todd is also the author of Our Take, regulatory alerts which provide daily updates on important industry developments via email. So, Todd, welcome to our show. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. First question. Why is compliance so fucked up? <laughs> well, I, I think to a large extent, I'm going to ask you seriously, even though that was a funny question in some ways. The, the serious answer is I think people mis don't really understand what it is. I think a lot of people, you know, they think that, uh, you know, Ooh, don't tell me what to do. Well, I'm going to get in trouble. You know, that kind of compliance. Uh, you're, you're essentially my work mother. You know, make sure I don't do anything wrong. Right. Um, or we're sort of like, you know, some deputy of the SEC where they're, you know, scouring the world to, to make, make the world safe for investing. And, and I guess there's an element of that to what we do, but really that's not how compliance got started. Really, if you look at why people have compliance programs, initially, way back when, before Sarbanes-Oxley, it was really to protect the company. The whole point of compliance programs was to be able to say to someone who sued you, hey, we as a company tried to do the right thing. We were reasonably trying to comply with the law and therefore we shouldn't be held liable for lawsuits. So I think, I think a lot of times our prospects and clients, they, they come at this kind of funny like you did, you know, oh, you know, don't, you're gonna tell me what to do. You can tell you not. I said, no, 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 our job fundamentally is to give you a defense so that if something does go wrong, you can say, hey, we were trying to do the right thing. So I think that's why it's a little, I'll say screwed up. Um, I think, I think it's, it's people don't understand what we're really all about. Well, yeah, let me take the other side of that for a second. I, I knew that you would. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I might. Yeah, comp compliance, that set of rules that we, we trot out, you know, largely, as you said, for a lawsuit to say, look, we've got a book and a binder here that tells us what to do. But doesn't that work against you when, when somebody is not in compliance in your firm? And the litigator on the other side said, it's in your book. You're obviously not training your people and now you're liable for negligence. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's a valid point. And look, I, I think there's there, the only thing worse than no compliance is bad compliance. Uh, what, and, and you're hundred percent right. If at the end of the day, you're going to do all this stuff and then ignore it. Yeah. That's kind of worse. Cause you're kind of like, like Stevie Cohen. Potentially. But, but I, well, I, think, well, I mean, famously in a deposition, and, and I know this because 
I, I had the same lawyer sue me. The difference is the difference is we kicked his ass. Thank you, Michael Bow from Kasowitz. Suck it. But his big heyday was to get a Stevie Cohen in a deposition saying he didn't know it was in his compliance book. Yeah, and, and honestly, I wouldn't expect uh, Steve, Steve Steve Cohen to know it's in his compliance book any more than I would expect you know the CEO of any any investment firm to know that. It, it's pretty detailed stuff. Look, what we do is there's lots of rules. Look, the Investment Advisors Act, which what we deal with mostly, it's a ton of rules, yeah. ton of rules. Um, and there's there's no possible way if unless you're a lawyer, a compliance person like me. And like, like weird people like me that write blogs and write books about compliance, you can do all that stuff. That's why you hire people to do it, right? Whether it's a firm like ours, you hire your own chief compliance officer, their job is to know what's in that book and make sure you're doing that. I think it, I, I, I would guess most CEOs probably don't know the details of their compliance. They should know some basic stuff. And really what it comes down to, Dan, is I would like to say people, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. That really, when you, when you boil it all down, that's what it boils down to. You should not steal from your clients. You shouldn't lie to them, full disclosure. Um, you shouldn't take money from them. But to know the details of the rules is hard. Fortunately, that's big business, Todd. I mean, <laughs> and Wall Street, that's big business, pal. I don't know what to tell you, but, and, you know, when you talk about compliance, it seems to me that somebody in your position is really teaching CEOs and, and people in compliance how to navigate the gray areas that are in compliance. Like there's some black and white, right? Thou shalt not steal. A lot of gray in there that some of the investment bankers would tell you. Do you find yourself doing that? Um, I think, I, I think you're, you're right. I think there's a lot of gray area. I think there is what I try to do, and I, there's no doubt that I help them navigate that. But I don't think it's uh, quite as insidious as you make it sound. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Um, the SEC intentionally leaves a lot of gray area. Let me give you a great example, uh, which everyone understands. Insider trading. Yeah. Not a big fan of insider trading. I'm not a big fan of insider trading laws because it's so gray. So what do I do? I read the cases. I read the enforcement actions. I read the SEC pronouncements. And I tell my clients, hey, here are the factual situations that are bad. Don't do that. Here are the ones that have not been attacked. So I, I, I'm trying to add some certainty in areas where there is no certain, where there is no certainty. So yeah, I help navigate the gray areas, but also the regulator intentionally creates gray area, which allows them to bring enforcement actions uh, in, where they can't otherwise make rules. So I, I think I think you're right. I, do I help them negotiate gray areas? Yeah, hopefully to keep them out of trouble is, is the idea. But still not screw. I'm st I still don't advise them to screw clients if they can sure. avoid that. See, no. See, I've always looked at the the compliance issue where where you go to the compliance office and say, "How close to this line can I get before I've I've crossed over it?" And like like I tied into um, who was it Feinstein and then uh, the Georgia senator who uh, were accused of the insider trading before the COVID pandemic where. Like, well, we didn't make the trade, but my husband made the trade and I made, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on this trade uh, by selling before it before, you know, everything got shut down. Yeah. Um, well, for a long time, insider trading was legal if you were a member of Congress. So oh, <laughs> it, 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 literally, it literally was legal. Yeah, correct. So. Old habits are hard to break. I think I, I look at this for insider trading. It is, it is much less black and white than I thought it was. And I, I still, in my mind, make it black and white. But for me, what I see is insider trading is very, very hard to prove if you're Mark Cuban <laughs> and you have all the money in the world. He spent more money defending himself than he would have in paying some kind of fine. And if that case wasn't insider trading, I don't know what is. How did he win? I, I think you bring up a good point. He, he I, I don't know the ins and outs of the Cuban case, to be honest. But uh, the, the problem you're pointing up is an important one. Because the law is so incredibly gray, if you're someone with resources, 
and good lawyers, you can make really strong arguments against the SEC or, or, or private suit. Conversely, if you're not someone with resources and you're up against the SEC, they are the government, as they say about the government, they, you know, they print the money and they have all the guns. It's tough to win. Not all so of them. If you're, yeah, right, yeah. not all of them. If, if at the end of the day, um, you have these gray areas, and that's why I'm not a big fan of the gray areas. I would like the SEC to be more specific in these areas because it does benefit people with resources and it works against people without resources. I agree. So how did Mark Cuban win? He may, he may be right on the law, I don't know, but he's certainly an individual with resources and if I were him, I would I would fight it too. And if you can get because that law is so vague, you can make really strong arguments in front of a judge. No, I mean I I, I don't fault him for fighting it, but like you know, <laughs> I mean as I remember, I, I could be wrong, but the he he had an investment in an online company called Mama Mia or something like that, and the he was talking to the CEO, and the CEO was talking about having to do a dilutive offering. The CEO's version was that he told him that and Mark said to him, shit, why'd you tell me that now I can't sell? And then he hung up the phone and went and sold. And I guess there was a back and forth about what his obligations were related to having that information. Yep. And he won. You know, meanwhile, like if you don't have the money, I mean, this litigation with the SEC, hundreds of thousands of dollars would be an understatement. It's likely going to cost you millions. So, and and that's yeah. and that's where they get precedent from. They beat up on somebody small, set a court precedent, and Mark Cuban really screwed them because it set a precedent in the other direction. wasn't Wasn't the Martha Stewart case kind of the same thing? She where where but she got hosed and did what eighteen months or something like that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So so there is statistics out there, and you're hundred percent right, uh, both of you. Um, when most of the SEC cases are done in front of administrative law judges, SC, which are, who are report to the SEC and are appointed by the SEC, and the SEC almost never loses those cases. Surprise, surprise! Wow. They have almost a hundred percent win percentage there. <laughs> well, they're judges. Yeah. When they go to federal court, which is the next level, the Wall Street Journal in an article a few years ago did a whole survey. The SEC only the SEC wins like more than two thirds of the cases, or close to two thirds of the cases in federal court. So what does that tell you? You can't win. You can't, you really can't. Yes, if you're Mark Cuban, I mean, God bless him. There's a, and there's there's precious few Mark Cubans out there. Um, you can win. And maybe maybe you, you're going to lose too, as Mark, the Martha Stewart case showed. But at the end of the day, you can't beat, you can't beat them in litigation. And as a result, well, to your point about going up to the line, what I sort of tell the clients is, if your business is fundamentally based on getting up to the line, you're probably not in a very good business because eventually it's going to bite. First of all, that was Carl's point, <laughs> not my point. And, and that is, that is Carl on every Friday and Saturday night, right up to the line, it, it, which is, it's a scary thing to see. And, and really I'm hoping he gets canceled over it. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 you know, I agree. I, you know, I, I actually stopped, using lawyers for the most part for compliance because I found like I only needed them when it was a gray area. And if you stay out of the gray area, then you really don't need them. And besides, every time I asked a question, the answer would be, it's a gray area. That'll be $20,000. <laughs> yeah. So most, the truth of the matter is most of my clients are, they, they run money, they're investment managers, fund managers. And, 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 there are really two things that are relevant in that business and that's running money and raising money that everything else is, is essentially right. a waste I agree. of time and effort. So it's, it's not, you're probably a hundred percent right, but most of them, they don't care about compliance, not because it's not important to their business because he makes it important, but it's not fundamental to their, to what they do. So what we do fundamentally is say, Hey, look, we'll, we'll make, we're going to make it easy for you. We're going to give you the rules of the road so you can follow them. I, uh, there really isn't a lot of people that come up and say, can you explain this gray area to me? Actually, for the most part, is they, they, don't, they don't have any clue what the day-to-day -day stuff is, and we help them with the rules of that road. Yeah, there's some gray areas. There's no doubt about it. Most of the gray areas are, though, like uh, marketing materials. You know, what can, I, what can and can I say about how we run money? Uh, a lot of that kind of stuff, product development. But for the most part, 
uh, and that's why we, we work as an outsource. They're just not that interested in doing compliance because it's not core to what they do. Now, the SEC has made it a regulatory core. You have to deal with it. But it's no more core to the business than uh, compliance is to a hospital. Very important, but not fundamental to their mission. And I, I, what we find is, you know, it, it's we, we don't spend a lot of time in the gray areas. It's really just helping them do something that they, they probably otherwise wouldn't do if they didn't, if they didn't have to. Yeah. You spend a lot of time trying not to be that guy on billions that everybody just shits oh, on him. in the office. Uh, Spiro? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that guy. You love Spiro? Well, I, don't, I mean, there's, there's actually, there's there's two great uh, compliance people. There's Spiro, who's the compliance guy everybody hates, right? Um, and I'll, bluntly, I've met, I've met guys like Spiro. It's, it's, it, the reason it's funny is, like all comedy, it's based in some sort of reality. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I, the, I've, I've, met, I've met those guys, too. And my favorite one, though, um, there's a movie with Chris Pine. Where he plays one of the the, the novelist uh, spies. I forget which one, which one it was. And he plays an anti-money laundering compliance officer that goes to Russia to, to ferret out the, a, a money laundering ring. And I'm like, see, there's a cool compliance officer to counterbalance Sparrow. Right. There, oh, yeah. So you, you, you're you of the James Bond ilk compliance officer. No, I'm officer. closer to Sparrow, to be honest with you. But, 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 uh, but I thought it was awesome. And I got to tell my kids, look, there's a cool compliance officer. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Only in the movies. No. But but that Sparrow character actually is, is an interesting point to that. Um, and I do think there, there, there it is out there. Uh, you know, people have to have a chief compliance officer. And Bobby Axelrod is the classic archetype. He's just there to take the bullet and put a fig leaf on the stuff I'm doing. There are there are folks like that out there. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I don't think that's us, but uh, th that archetype certainly exists. And I think that more has the, the history in the broker dealer world more so than the straight up money management world. Well, what's so? So you were doing this kind of through the financial crisis, and mm -hmm. after Sarbanes Oxley. Which I, I, I could tell you, I remember when that came out, our, our, our CFO was just like, oh, well, everything's on lockdown. Now I have to sign everything and the comptroller has to sign everything and there's never going to be fraud again. <laughs> anyway, what was the most egregious thing you saw in that time? I mean, do you have any stories that you could impart that either um, somebody got away with or didn't? Yeah, I think I think. Um, I, I think a lot of my clients, a lot of the prospects I talked, I got some, I got some great stories, but um, I think performance is an area that I, I saw, I've seen some really weird things. I'll give you an example. This was not a client. It was a, it was a prospect and they came to me and they, they claimed to have a value product, a large cap value, which is about as milk toast as you're going to get. And they claimed to outperform the index by 700 basis points. That's 7% for those not in the know, which is not possible, almost virtually impossible. And I said that to them. I said, guys, how are you possibly saying? And they said, well, we have all this data. I'm like, you look like a bunch of idiots. If you're not engaging in fraud, you're just freaking stupid because nobody is going to buy this. Nobody believes it. The SEC is not going to believe it. So I've seen I've had a lot of stories like that. And then the other thing I get is a lot of goofy products. So uh, my, my, one of my favorite stories is, is the Iraq fund. I, I, I tell a story all the time. Some guy, this was right after, it was right during the Iraq war. So it was, what was that, early Bush administration? Guy, guy calls me and says, I want to create an Iraq fund. This is when basically the entire country is, is rock. You know, we've been bombing it for whatever. There's not, no government or nothing. He goes, he goes, I think all Iraq stocks are undervalued. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's like. Yeah. yeah, no shit. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I get calls with all kinds of stuff. I, you know, I, uh, I got a call recently. Some dude wanted to do a cannabis fund. Never managed money in his life. I, you know, I've got, I've had. Was he high? I, I honest to God thought he was. Probably. I was like, really, dude? You, you, you know, and so you know, I, I get those kind of things. I think performance is a big area. I get fintech is an interesting one. There's a lot of guys in fintech now, um, and we have some great clients in fintech. But I, I see a lot of people; they don't really even understand when they start doing money stuff that it's all regulated. They, you know, they, they take this view that I can do anything, and they start doing what I call goofy shit, which is like stuff. If you knew anything about financial services, you know you can't do. 
ways you market your product, the way, using testimonials, doing all kinds of stuff. So we see a lot of that kind of stuff in that area. And I always tell those guys, hey, you know, hire a freaking lawyer. Just because you, you talk about going up to the line. Like most people know that you can't just you can't put out target performance. Our fund, we think our fund's going to do fifteen percent over the next. You can't if you're a spec. Yeah, well, there's some, there's some truth to that, um, right? It is but true. You're not you're not supposed to do that. But but you don't really anyone who's been in the business they don't really ask that question. But I've had that with with fintechs. They're like you know, and I'm like, look, guys, you can't say that, and they think I'm crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good to have that kind of. Uh pushback on on the marketing because it can be ridiculous i had a private i had a private equity firm years ago this is right around uh, the dot frank they sent me their deck i don't know if you've ever seen a private equity deck oh i have yeah investments. okay um and basically all level three valuation <laughs> well of course right it's all it's all private um and they said hey we're, we're thinking of registering we got this dot frank thing on the horizon you can take a look at the deck and tell us what you think and i basically had comments on every page i'm like you can't, once you're registered, you can't do any of this. You, get, you can't show gross performance without showing net performance. You can't, you can't use um, testimonials. You can't use hypotheticals. You can't just cherry pick deals. And so I, I gave them all this stuff and they fired me. Well, <laughs> yeah. They're like, this guy's a pain in the ass. So they fired me. <laughs> and hired somebody else and did what they wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I think they ultimately registered. I'm trying to know what happened, but, and, and got their act together. But you know, that kind of stuff happens a lot. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I never went back working in a company again is, um, I, you know, I worked for a great company, and I, this, but, you know, I think CEOs and execs, a lot of them want to hear what they want to hear. And the nice thing about being an independent provider, if, if a client we have doesn't really want to get with the program, we can say, you know, sayonara, we'll, we'll move on to other clients. And if you're an in-house CCO, it's a hard thing to do, right? The only thing you can do is quit. I mean, we can quit very easily. We got a hundred something clients, and I think it's really hard for, for, for if if you got a senior exec who only wants to hear what he wants to hear, it's put you in a very tough position. Have you ever been in a situation where one of your clients is rung up and sent to jail? Uh, never to jail. Never to jail. Um, can always always I, pay that fine and stay out of jail, can't you? Um, well. We can talk politics here. I, I, I'm a big, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of criminal prosecution for financial issues. Um, right. I think there's, to your point, there's too much gray area for that. I don't, I have my, you mentioned Martha Stewart. I'm not saying she shouldn't, I, I don't know if she engaged in cyber trading or not. Even if she did, I, I think jail was, is, is the wrong penalty for that situation. Um, but okay, we, we can talk about that. I have had clients lie and commit fraud, not knowing it. I had a private equity firm once, uh, they were engaging in uh, they were engaging in, um, with uh, vendors uh, that were actually owned by the CEO. So essentially, they were selling selling to the fund, and they hid the name and didn't and, and didn't related disclose party it. transactions. A classic related party transaction, but clearly hidden on purpose, um, and that that really upset me. Needless to say, um, we've had situations like that. Um, people hiding things where people get into real trouble is when the finances dry up like the business isn't successful and you see a lot of guys they get they they entrepreneurs particularly they get into multiple businesses with conflicts and that's where people get into real trouble they start robbing peter to pay paul and then all of a sudden the sec is all over them i've seen that a lot yeah well i'm just gonna you know back to people shouldn't go to jail for financial crimes i don't know i mean you know stealing is a financial crime and poor people go to jail for it all the time. And, I, you know, it does it does foment that classism that we have, that if you steal enough money, you don't go to jail. So I don't know. I, I just don't know how we get around that. And, and as you said, the guy committed fraud knowingly. And that should come with some sort of. All right. So let's. Yeah. So I, I, let's put a finer point on that. Um Absolutely. Uh, you know, if a broker steals a client's money, wires it to his own account, classic theft, he should go to jail. I got no problem with that. Um, but there are a lot of financial crimes where the Justice Department gets involved, where very often it's even hard for them to prove what the loss is. It's clearly something went wrong. They violated the law, maybe. Um, but they, they can't even identify 
uh, you know, who benefited and why. Um, and I think in those where the, where the law is so gray and the harm is so unclear, and it's one reason I don't love jail for insider trading, because there, there's a whole, I mean, I don't need to get the academic debate about is there actual harm that's caused anybody. Sure, there's there's a benefit gain, but is there harm to anybody else? Um, I think I think putting depriving someone of their freedom, I think, is a very, very harsh penalty. Yeah, I, I mean, but I, I would say that some of that has to happen or we're, we're going, we're going to continue to have this, this divide in this gap. I mean, the, I, I deal in this market on a daily basis with, you know, frauds, criminals, and, and then there are the CEOs that are just kind of like legal frauds, right? They just, as, as Carl does on Friday and Saturday, he walks right up to that line with accounting shenanigans and things of that nature. I don't know that it's going to be good for our market in the end. I understand where you're coming from. You're just, you've got the rules in front of you. You're the, the rules master and, and you're trying to help clients out, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's going to help us if we ever stop giving away free money. So let me, let me touch on that a bit because I think you're bringing up a interesting point. The SEC and Exit Justice Department have been really focused on actually prosecuting individuals and corporations and financial firms individually. Uh, is a long history. There's this Gates memo that Sally Yates put out about prosecuting individuals. And, and it sounds great. It's all great in theory. You know, we're going we're gonna to throw that defrauding CEO in jail for cooking the books and this and that. And that. But if you look at the history of a lot of it, what ends up happening is instead of the CEO getting prosecuted, um, there, there's a fall guy somewhere in the chain, whether it be a COO, even a compliance officer. Um, there's a couple of cases out there against compliance officers, which is near and dear to my heart, where the SEC, now it's not criminal prosecutions, these are individual prosecutions against them. And where the CEO, the chief compliance officer got prosecuted as sort of a, a aiding, aiding the firm and doing some wrongdoing. But the, but the problem with that is, and they, they, then they find the, the, the guy or bar, and, and or barred him or her from the industry. But in these cases, the chief compliance officer really didn't make any money. They may, they're, they're salaried employees, a nice salary, but it's not like they're, they're getting some huge benefit personally out of it. So in a situation where there's no personal benefit and there's no clear cut loss, it, I am seeing the SEC going after people that may not be at the top of that organization who are, yes, complicit, absolutely. But what you end up creating is a fall guy situation where someone in the organization, very often the chief compliance officer, is the fall guy for for corporate wrongdoing, yeah. and I do have a big. But but if they're on that C level, part of their compensation is is going to be uh, options, right? And if that stock is in, inflated because of whatever fraud they're perpetuating, th that's that benefit, the direct benefit for them. So, I mean, that's kind of like a an interesting like Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, she became a billionaire because of of what they were, and I got to tell you, she should go to jail. Well, she may. Yeah. Yeah, I, honestly, I, I've read so much. I mean, I've read about the case in the papers just as much as I know about it. Um, I think there's a real question about what she knew, what she's supposed to know, what happened there. I know what the popular press says. I'm not going to be the great defender of her, but um, I do think uh, the, the, the prosecution has, has a lot to do to prove their case. And I also think there's a whole question out there of, of what she has done versus what others have done out there that have not been similarly prosecuted. I would agree actually. And I'm not, I'm not an Elizabeth Holmes fan in, in any way, but I think part of the selective prosecution here for her is because she's really freaking weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, I mean, I mean, it, she it, just shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a crime. Weird. Yeah, then, right? I, I agree. I mean, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, we, you what I'm saying. Jail. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not, I mean, uh, I, I think that she had that whole persona and she played it up and the whole Steve Jobs thing and the eyes and the whatever. And, and it just gets vilified over and over in every single article. It's like, it's a tough pull for her. You know, I hope if she did something wrong that she pays for it. And I, but I would hope that everybody else in that same situation gets kind of equal justice. And I, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I mean, the example that everyone uses, and I think it's a good example, is Elon Musk. And I, I have no problems with Elon Musk. I got no problem. He's a douche. Businesses. But well, I don't know him personally. Um, you know, I don't either. But he's a douche. No, no. <laughs> but 
he he directly violated an SEC order. Yeah. I mean, continues to was, continues to. There, there is no gray area there, right? SEC has done nothing. Right. Um, I, I I don't really have a view on that one way or the other. That sounds like you do. Other, well, I think they should at least be consistent. I don't understand. It's the only difference between, between Elizabeth Holmes and Elon Musk that the business she was in was healthcare, and therefore ultimately could hurt people down the road. And I, that is that maybe that is the difference. But from a that that should not be the difference from a securities law perspective. If you want to sue her for tort, like she injured people because she lied, okay, I different issue. But if her only issue is a disclosure issue. And that's an SEC question. I don't know what, I'm not sure what the, the intellectual difference is. So do, what do you think changes now with, with the new administration? Do you think we're still like Jesse Eisinger's chicken shit club? Or, I mean, I mean, I, I would say that our new SEC chairman loves to go on YouTube and do media appearances, <laughs> but, and, and that's fine. Cool. We, we need reassurance, but like not much has happened. No, not much has happened at all. Um, it's it sort of surprised me. Um, so I'm going to start with a disclaimer, which is I actually really like the SEC. I, I think a good regulator is really important. Oh, we all I love think. them. Yeah. <laughs> but, listen, I think you need a regulator. I, I think that is, I, I don't think anyone denies that. And they, they're they generally pretty good. I, yeah, I, I've worked with that's too fair. many people. And most of the people I work with the SEC are long-term, they're not political appointees, they're long-term employees, and they're pretty smart and pretty knowledgeable. The whole point of the SEC is to have a specialized group so that you don't leave it to Congress to figure out cryptocurrency or, and stuff like that. Oh. Um, yeah, right, and, and, and that's my experience. So I like the SEC to take action, I really do, and I would rather have the SEC take action than some other regulator like FINRA or, or the CFTC or, or a foreign regulator, et cetera, or a state regulator, God forbid. Um, so I'm a big fan of them taking action. So I, 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 uh, I, I'm, I don't know Gary Gensel personally. I, I obviously know his work when he was at the CFTC and he was a very active regulator there. And I don't, I don't really disagree with a lot of things he said. Um, I'm a little puzzled by what's going on at the commission. It's already September and not, no significant rulemaking has come out yet. Um, it's been a fairly, like you said, there's been a lot of public statements and interviews um just you know, kind of the throwing thing things against the wall seeing if it sticks like yeah just, maybe, it, maybe we're going to go it, against uh order flow payment for order flow maybe we're going to go against crypto and regulate that maybe maybe, maybe we're going to do this and that but none of it's out there yeah i think that's right let's take crypto which i, I think is mostly we, we can talk about paying for order flow which i think is less important than crypto regulation everyone keeps saying crypto is really scary right and and should be regulated I keep hearing that. But the SEC keeps saying we're not going to regulate it because we don't know if we can regulate it. Well, the truth of the matter is crypto is a thing. It's, there's nothing scary or unscary about it. It's just a payment mechanism. Um, some people are speculating in it. I would advise against that. Some people are saying it's it's simply just going to be another currency that people can use. I think that's probably where it's headed. I fundamentally think it's going to replace credit cards someday. Um, some people think it's uh, it's a great way to do security settlement, uh, a real easy way. Regardless, I, I, I fundamentally believe crypto, I don't know which cryptos, are, are here to stay. So I think they're too, it's a too useful of a, of a thing not to be here. I, I, think that, I think it is too. Given that that's the case, the only way crypto becomes safe is if it's regulated. And all the crypto tech heads that I've met at conferences is, oh, you know, we, don't, we shouldn't be regulated. Like, you're an idiot. I'm like, only regulation makes people think you're not a bunch of crazy people, right? And the example I use, which is kind of a goofy one, is mutual funds. Back in 1940, mutual funds were considered crazy. They were fraudulent and layered. Investment company come, comes in. The mutual fund is the most regulated investment product in world history. And it's far and away the most successful product in world history. And they are not independent of each other. It's because it made people feel safe to invest. Crypto is the same thing. The more regulation that's involved, this, the, the less volatile it will be, the safer you invest. And this idea that the SEC can't regulate it, excuse me, is bullshit. No, um, yeah. They absolutely can, they can regulate disclosure. They're, take a look, uh, Dan, at, uh, at one of the, B, the Bitcoin ETFs. They address valuation, they address uh, trading, they, they address liquidity, 
Um, they hit all the issues the SEC is concerned about. If they can do it, there's no reason the SEC can't set standards. I don't know, and maybe they are. Maybe the Grunions inside the SEC are busy working on that right now. But the longer they wait, the more that market becomes the Wild West. And some regulator is going to be the prime regulator for that market. It may be the Brits, it may be Cayman Islands, it may be the Chinese. I don't know. Uh, my think, money's on China. But I think the SEC is just abdicating uh, an area where it, they are the best regulator to regulate that. They know more. I'd rather have them do it. I'd rather have the market be here than in Hong Kong. That, that's my view of that. And I would love to see Gary Gensler step in and, and write some rules, or at least propose some rules. Maybe he is. I just, he just got there yet. Do you think that hesitancy is because they, they don't want to be the catalyst for crypto to replace fiat currency? Um, I, I don't. I, it's a great question, Carl. I don't think that's the reason. Um, I don't. I don't think the SEC, unless that's coming from above. I don't. I don't believe the SEC folks are, are thinking about the ins and outs of, of uh, macroeconomic policy and fiat currencies. They might be. I, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, it's political. There's a lot of politics here. Um, they don't want to do the wrong. They don't want to approve something that turns into a fiasco. I think that's a big part of it, and I, and I don't blame them for that. So they issue, they issue regulation and there's fraud anyway. And I think that's one reason they have not approved any Bitcoin ETFs. I think they're afraid. They're afraid it's going to turn into a disaster. Um, there, there, there are Bitcoin ETFs on Ethereum's. Yeah, the, 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 the straight up one, uh, the straight up ones where you're investing directly. I'm not, I'm not sure they're worried about what, what Coral just said, but like, you know, I'm, I'm reading more and more where the government now wants to look at how much money you're putting in the bank and how much you're taking out at, at smaller levels, even like, you know, whether it's, you know, used to be 10 grand, right? Now they're, they're looking at like 600 bucks or something. You start pulling shit like that. And that's going to be a flight to something like, you know, cryptocurrency because I'm not having that shit. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and so very interesting what's going on. I think it's El Salvador has adopted uh, Bitcoin as yeah. their currency. Yeah, I think the entire country's worth two coins, but go ahead. <laughs> you got to tell you, though, the food is terrific. Yeah, yeah. Say what you want, but yeah, yeah. make a great food. Um, but uh, listen, I think that is a fascinating experiment. Um, and the rollout, they've had a few glitches, but it's been relatively smooth. And and I, I do think that is a threat to the to American hegemony, hegemony because the U.S. dollar is, is huge throughout the world. But... There are lower transaction costs. It's more efficient. You don't have you don't have to worry about a central bank reserves. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with El Salvador, and I, I do think if that, if it works there, you will see other countries go that route. Um, Way to solidify solidify. So, but I don't think that's what's holding the SEC up. I mean, I, I think Carl's point is a good one, but I'm not sure that's what's what's holding the SEC up. I think there's a lot here, and and there's an expertise issue that I think. We're all struggling with. No, I, think. I think there's a big issue of expertise in the SEC with crypto. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, but I, I don't blame them. I think I've, I've gone to a lot of conferences. I've read a lot of books. Uh, I, the, I don't know if there is such a thing as a cryptocurrency expert right now. It seems like a lot of people know bits and pieces. About well, it. I could introduce you to a hundred of them, you know, two blocks away. That you know, Definitely. they're they're, yeah, they're no, all but, experts. And you know what? The crypto they believe in is the only one, and everyone else is shit. Yeah, shit. Right. Yeah. Right. That's that's what. And, and they don't work. To. They don't work for the SEC or Congress. What, what about the NFTs as well? These you know non fungible tokens. I mean, it, they're fascinating. Um, I I don't know. I I, I think that's going to remain more of a, a corner of the market. You know, I I heard someone explain it almost like collecting art. It, it is. And and, and and you know that's always been part of financial services. People invest in collectibles. I just think the NFTs are a different form of collectible. I, I think it's fine. Um, I, I, again, I, I don't think, you know, a mom and pop should be spending their life savings on uh, a, a video of Michael Jordan's, you know, best dunk. But, you know, okay. You know, I, I have no problem with it. I, you know, listen, with 90% of the collectible market being fraud, <laughs> I mean, something had to be done. Well, I think it's a valid point. Well, even the anti-money laundering thing, back, going back to crypto, everyone's all, you know, focused on AML, anti-money laundering. The easiest way to launder, launder money is with cash. We well, don't have any problem with cash. People say, oh, well, you, know, you, you can use crypto for money laundering. Yeah, you, the other thing you can use is, you know, cash. <laughs> and no one seems to have a problem with that. You know what else you can use for money laundering? Money. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I always, I was like, I always look at people. I'm like, what are you talking about? 
Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a perfect example. Uh, you know, is the are NFTs any worse than you know buying a, a, a fraudulent trading card? No, it's probably better because at least there's some verification. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So what do you see on the horizon for for us to deal with in the next year or two? Give us a give us your outlook. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, on the retail side, I think you, you hit on one payment for order flow is being very interesting. Um, this sort of gamification of trading. I think there's two sides of this payment for order full thing, right? There's, there's the the kickback that the that the the brokers like Robinhood. And I'm not. I'm using them as the most well known, but they're no better, no worse than some of the others. They may be better actually. They may be better infrastructure, um, and they've hired some really good compliance and regulatory people to fix things. But that's that's one part. But the other part is this sort of gamification idea, trying to basically turning. Uh, investing into DraftKings or f fantasy football, if you will, and encouraging people to throw money at things and giving them little prizes and things and little pop-ups. The S, I think it was the SEC, might have been FINRA recently, is, I think might have been FINRA, is looking at that saying, is that investment advice? If you're encouraging someone to invest, is that investment advice in and of itself giving rise to a regulated activity? You're talking like DraftKings is saying like, you know, uh, your first $1,000 bet is guaranteed or Yeah, whatever. yeah, that kind of stuff. I can, I, I can't. I can't believe that. No, yeah, yeah, right. It's great stuff. It just shows you how many people, how much people lose gambling. But you know, I think the big difference is with DraftKings, right? DraftKings, everyone knows gambling is for fun. It's, it's you know, whatever. You know, the capital markets are not supposed to. Be, I know you're going to hate this. Are not supposed to be for gambling. I know people do that, but theoretically, societally, we're trying. We're trying. I totally agree. Uh, the money's supposed to go to allocate capital for people to use it to grow the economy and build yeah, jobs. That's right. So to create, turn it into a game, I just think it, it is fundamentally different from 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 DraftKings um, or Bar. You know, I just I just think it is, and I think I think the regulators are right to view it that way. So I think I think you're going to see a change in that. I think they're going to put a, put the kibosh on this sort of fantasy football aspect of uh, of, of, uh, of investing. See, that's how that's their trick to grow their their market base, right? Because yep. you take that average person who doesn't know squat and is like, oh, cool, I get $5 of free Bitcoin when I open my account. And then if I look at this other video, I get another $2. And it's just Apple started it with the iPhone in 08 when they figured out how to trap you on the phone. Now it's just pulling <laughs> you into everything. It's addictive. Um, and, and the problem is, and this is, you know, I've been doing this a long time, as, as you read in the bio, look, things are, things are going to correct. The market's not going up forever. And I think that solves it. Well, it will solve a lot. It's I think I think, yeah, you, you want gamblers anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> let's see. Let's see this market pull back more than 20 percent. Let's see it pull back 30 or 40 percent. And uh, I mean, because it's gone up 40 percent in the last couple of years, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And and stop handing out payments uh, for for not working. And yeah, we're not going to have this kind of this kind of just like stocks only go up, throw money in the market if I want to solve my problems. How many people sitting home during the pandemic really just began trading and thought, wow, this is really easy. I just buy things and they go up. Um, I, the, the analog to me, and I've been around long enough, was, was the dot-com crash, right? In, in 95 through 2000, I mean, you, you could do no wrong. I mean, I know, Dan, you were around then. And, and, and it was the same kind of thing. People were doing all... There's all the stories, the taxi drivers giving stock tips and all that. And then other, all of a sudden, the music stopped. And people got hurt, and they got hurt really badly. And, uh, and, and that, you're right, that, 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 that has a bad effect on everybody. Yeah, it's, it's a situation now where, you know, obviously put out critical research. You know, and for all my haters, yeah, a short report. I'm going to crash your shit. <laughs> You know, when when I look at some of this research now, it's like, oh, this company doesn't make money. They've never made money. They're never going to make money. Not interesting. That's just not interesting in this market. Nobody cares. It's like everything's become a biotech. <laughs> Nobody cares if a biotech makes money because the thought is it will someday. And it, the whole market is is pervasive this way now. And yeah. at some point, making money is going to matter. Oh, no, it, it, it always comes around. The problem is, and this is the regulatory issue I have. So what, what did what did the dot com bust beget? Right, it begot Sarbanes Oxley to a large extent, and we can have a long history of that. It begets a lot of regulation 
like even the compliance rule, you know, which is how we make our living was post.com bus, post surveillance. I think, you know, there's an old saying in law, bad facts make bad law. So when, when, when something goes wrong, and it will, um, the uh, folks in Congress start passing laws thinking they're going to remedy it for the next situation. So you got the financial crisis and you get Dodd-Frank, which you know, we can all debate whether that was a good law. I think, it's, I think it was overdone. Um, they regulated hedge funds. I got no problem with regulating hedge funds, but they had nothing to do with the financial crisis. I got bad news for you. You know, it's just the false spot. You know, things go wrong. We get bad legislation, and that, that ultimately hurts everybody. And I also think, at the end of the day, more regulation actually limits retail investors because it costs a lot to service retail investors. You know, the more regulation there is, the more those costs goes up. And really, it, it leaves a retail investor to invest. And I think this is one of the reasons for the success of Robinhood's. You know, it's really easy to invest in an index fund, you know, a Vanguard index fund. I invest in lots of them. I think they're great. But if you try to do anything outside of that as a retail investor, it ain't easy. Um, they make it really hard. No, you have to be a qualified investor for a lot of yeah. things, which it's right. you know, I, I don't know how having a million dollars makes you a qualified investor. I mean, I, I, I see a lot of millionaires that are idiots, but it, it is one of the things that, that puts you over the top, right? That says you can, you can invest in private equity, you can invest in hedge funds, you can do whatever you want, but yet there are some really savvy people out there that, you know, could invest a hundred thousand or 200,000. Yeah. I, I'm a mixed feelings about this. So I don't mind having some sort of income thresholds in the theory that if you're rich enough, it's, you're okay to be stupid. So if you lose some, you lose some, who cares? I don't, I don't, that doesn't bother me, but I do think, um, I've actually advocated for uh, a financial uh, sophistication test. So let's just take a credit sure. investor definition. Yeah. Instead of being a strict numbers test, you could take a, a, a quiz, have it run by FINRA, whoever, um, showing your, your knowledge of the financial markets. And that alone should qualify you as an accredited investor, as opposed to you having a certain dollar threshold. Yeah, except everybody um, put the quiz online. But I get it. It's, it's like it's like a shooting test to have a concealed carry permit or something like you should you should know how to use a gun if you're going to carry one around. And, you know, right. losing all your money can kill yourself as, as fast as a gun. I'm not against it, some kind of quality test there. Yeah. And I don't know. Why, I don't know why we're so focused on that number. I, I I'm with you. I, I think it's a very imperfect proxy for for whether determining someone should be able to invest in something more risky or not. I, I, so. What's on the horizon for your firm? You're still actively out there finding, you know, the next uh, Spiro client. <laughs> I love Spiro. So, you know, from our perspective, what we see um, the, the, the hot areas that we deal with, ESG is, is huge. And every, everyone's ESG. In that, right, in, right. In every firm is an ESG and none of them are, actually. I it, yeah, I heard it's fake. They're, there, there's some truth to that. And it, it's really hard for us because I'm like, if you're going to say you're ESG or you have some sort of, sort of, you, you got to sort of manage your fund like that. I mean, you, you know, so I, I do have a lot of concerns. So ESG is really huge. Private equity is huge. I mean, it, it's, it's been the fastest growing part of our business for a number of years. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they are all awash in cash. I think that's because they're stacking everything. Well, there, that is part of the issue. There's nothing to invest in. We'll see what happens if the market corrects, what the, how, how that will affect the world. I think it will affect the world. Um, I think SPACs may have, I, the SPAC loan may have come and gone. Um, obviously, some of the SPACs have really underperformed. Don't I know it? Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's been an issue. Not for me. <laughs> and, uh, and FinTech, a lot of companies trying to use various forms of technology, like the Robinhoods, but also the Robos, um, trying to figure out how to service retail investors as cheaply as possible and give them access to portfolios, I still think. And, and I would say one of the, the others, on the other side of it, I think the tradi traditional financial advisor is in real peril. I think those guys are a bit of, a, of yesterday's news. I think they're the, they're the boomer generation's financial advice. I think if you look at the millennials and, the, and, and even the Zs, they have no interest in talking to, to somebody in a, in a, in a blue suit anymore. They want to go online and just do it. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a sea change over the next several years. And you're seeing, and I, and I think the regulators have really hurt that business too. I think in, in some of the, some of the specific, right, the regulation best interests in some of the, uh, from this form CRS, 
has made it very costly to run a traditional financial planning. Oh, I don't know why anybody would want to be an investment advisor. Like, really, you know what? <laughs> when and if I have a problem with FINRA or or the SEC or whatever, if they want to come pull a license, go right ahead. I don't fucking have one. They, it's just something to hold over their heads, and and then really it becomes something online that they got to live with that they've got some kind of complaint or whatever. And with index funds, why would you why would you need an investment advisor? You just invest in the index funds, and they return better than mutual funds after you take out the fees for mutual funds. You know, John Oliver, whether you like this guy, or you don't like this guy. A couple of years ago, did a fantastic segment on, on index funds versus mutual funds. Right. And it's like, you can't really go wrong in the long term. Yeah. I, I have two answers to that. I, I'm going to answer your first question. Why would you want to be a financial advisor? And the answer is hundred basis points on the assets. There's good money in it. And uh, I think that's why people still do it. And I think there's still a lot of people who use financial advisors. Um, and, and, I, and I think there are people that I come across that are way less sophisticated than you that really could use the help. They have no idea even how to find, how to buy. They don't even know what ETF is, no let's buy one. And, and there's real value there for those that are less sophisticated. Uh, uh, doctors, for instance, I, I joke, but that's, that's the old joke. Uh, yeah, no, it's true. If you can't sell it, sell it to a doctor. And I, listen, I got, my, I got friends and family that are doctors, and it's somewhat true, they're just not financially sophisticated. Um, and there are a lot of people like that. So I, I don't, I think there's a place for financial planners and I understand why they do it. But I think as an industry, it, it's one in decline and I think will will be in permanent decline. I don't think, I don't think that's cyclical. I think that is going to be a secular change. I agree with you that I, my experience as doctors are not financially sophisticated, but <laughs> I, I find it very ironic that, um, you know, 80, 90% of them are qualified investors. <laughs> well, it's a good point. And, it was such a weird, we're picking on doctors. And I think it's because it's, it's unusual to have a, a profession so well healed, generally speaking. Right. I know we can have a whole conversation, medicine, what used to be, whatever. But be so business unsophisticated. There, there's very little, few segments of society like that. Like, you know, you think if you run a small business, you run a dry cleaner, you are probably more financially sophisticated. Undoubtedly. Than Undoubtedly. Not make, you're not making the money they're making. So who makes it other than professional athletes? And I actually have some clients that are sports agents. And I think they do a great job because they, they are, they're dealing with people that make a lot of money in a short period of time who are very financially unsophisticated and they help them invest that money. So they don't, they don't go, they don't become MC hammer. And, right? and 80% right? of them do become MC hammer. Well, right. And see, so I think they serve a function there, but other than that, there's just not, I mean, it's just such a weird doctor, such a weird place because this idea that money alone makes you sophisticated. You're exactly right. That's the perfect example against that. Um, it's, it's unusual, um, but it's the old joke on Wall Street. If you can't sell it, find a bunch of doctors. I thought the old joke on Wall Street is this time it'll be different. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> that, that was a well, shout out to you, Soren. Yeah, no, and, and it's funny. Uh, I, I, again, I think this is my age talk, and I've heard this many times. And I, I always have to hedge against when someone comes to me, a prospect with this, quote, new product, and I'm like, same shit, different day. I've, I saw this, I, I've seen this a million times. Um, you know, before there was long short, there was market neutral and you know, it, it, whatever. Before there was ESG, there was, uh, what they used to call it, there was SRI and before SRI, it was something else. What did SRI stand for? Socially responsible investing. Socially responsible investing. Huh, yeah, yeah I think I do remember that now. Yeah. So and, and look, there's ES, but there's no G. So that we can just get rid of the G. No governance. Uh, there's yeah, no such thing as an independent board of director. Which is the, the dumbest thing ever. Right? The, the, talk about an oxymoron. An independent board of director is paid by the company. And I'm not exactly sure how that's an independent board, but it's not. It's as uh, it's as independent as a uh, investment bank analyst from the investment bank uh, lending uh, arm. So. There you I, go. I was I was once on the phone with an NASD guy. This goes back many years, and this was back in the days when they were trying to get independent directors to own a good chunk of stock in the company, so they, their interests would be aligned with shareholders. And I said to him, "So let me get this straight: you want independent directors, but you want them to own more stock in the company. But if they own too much stock in the company, then they're no longer independent directors, right?" So they better sell it as soon as they get it. <laughs> he's like, he's like, shut up. <laughs> you're, you're fired. Wise, Bring wise, in the next wise guy. Ass. <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I, the whole idea of 
And this is why even on the mutual fund side where you have to have independent directors, I, I never really understood that. I mean, I, I get the theory behind it, but funds and ETFs are liquid. If you don't like it, you can leave anytime you want. You got this whole infrastructure which costs shareholders. And at the end of the day, if you don't want to, you just sell the fund. I mean, I don't know what, what we're doing all this for. It's silly. If you really want an independent director, appoint a short seller to your board. <laughs> Love that. Oh, can I use that? I, I mean, go right ahead. But like, Love that. I, you know, for as, as sharp as Carson Block is and, you know, nobody's lining up to have this guy on his board. He would be real value add. Soren Andal, same thing. Nobody wants that person agitating for more clarity and more transparency. They just want somebody to, you know, turn in their options and, and get paid. Oh, I think that's right. I, I, don't, I, I mean, there is way too much uh, cronyism at the board level, whether it be public companies or, or at the fund level. That is something I would really love to see the SEC take on at some point. Like when, when a company commits financial fraud, Maybe not everybody on the board of directors, but how about the audit committee chair <laughs> has some responsibility there and that never happens, but. I'm well, gonna... there's lots of reasons. I mean, the reality is they're all insured out the yin yang, but with, with directors and officers insurance. So you're not insured against prosecution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, well, we, I don't want to have a whole policy conversation there, but there's a lot of reasons that doesn't happen. Not the least of which most directors at large public companies are rich, wealthy people. So there's one reason, uh, not a lot of reason. Yeah. And whenever somebody says there's a lot of reasons that, you know, things are the way they are, this happens. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm talking to members of Congress again. A lot of smart people own that. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, well, our relationship with China is complicated. No shit. That's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think you're right though, Dan. I, I think whether it's a short seller or just someone who, has a voice that could be an irritant and say to people, you know, hey, I mean, I, I think this is one of, one of the things that we, all, we, we do. I mean, uh, there, there's a great book um, written by a guy named Eugene Soltis at Harvard called Why They Do It. And it kind of, he did this entire study of why uh, various, various scandals and why the companies did it. I mean, he covered Enron and made up to cover a bunch of other ones. And basically what it boiled down to, there was no one in the executive suite to say, what the hell are we doing? Are we out of our goddamn freaking minds? Um, and, and the companies that avoid that stuff, there's always somebody in the room and says, excuse me, have we thought this could be really bad? And uh, we think as, as a compliance firm, that's one of the things we do. We're, we are an outsource, we're independent. And, and, I can, and because I have 100 something clients, if they, if they piss me off and they do the wrong thing, I can leave. I'm like, you know what, dude, that's a stupid idea and, and we're out. Um, and I, I think, but to tie the two ideas together, Dan, I think that's really missing in the in the corporate boardroom and the fund boardroom, I really do. Anything you want to add as a closing remark? I mean, really start to close out two thousand and twenty one. Yeah, I think I think it's, I think I think uh, the, the, what you're going to see in the next four months is a lot of change. I think you're going to see a lot of change in the markets. The markets are already looking a little volatile, and I think you're going to see a lot of change in the regulation. I do think Gary Gensler and the SEC is going to take some actions, and I think they're going to be significant. And I think you're going to see a lot of movement in cryptocurrency. That, that's what I think. What do you think the top three changes will be? Or uh, three three possible changes and the one that will happen. Um, payment for order flow. As in stopping it? I think what they're going to do is make the disclosure so onerous as to virtually stop it. That's what I think they're going to do. I think you will see some form of cryptocurrency fund be approved by the SEC. A third change, I think you're going to see some changes in enforcement when it comes to regulation best interest against brokers. I think the SEC is basically going to apply a fiduciary standard by through enforcement. I guess that is the three big regulatory changes. I think you might be right about all three of those. I don't know if it's going to happen in the next four months, but I I I see it. I yeah, see it. my website. I do I do I do ten predictions every year, and I'm batting about six hundred on my predictions. So you can take a look. And this year I'm not doing so great because nothing much has happened. So I made a bunch of predictions. We'll see what happens at the end of the year. What's your prediction on whether Carl gets arrested for assaulting somebody with his eyes? <laughs> it's a hundred percent. All right. Because the township room. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me. I know people. <laughs> right, so tell them to stay off the school grounds. Oh. <laughs>
yeah, yeah. Now he has kids, so there. The, he does. He does have a, a a black and white line there. Thank, thank, thank goodness, Trump. Todd, tell us where we can find you and uh, how we can follow you. I I know that you write blogs. I know you're on Twitter, and give us all that stuff. Yeah, it's uh, the best way to find me is Sipperman.com. It's spelled with a C as in Charlie, I-P-P-E-R-M-A-N.com. From there, you can our blog is, is right there on our website, and you can get all the other good stuff there. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, another episode of I Hung Up on Warren Buffett, because I did. And thanks, Todd Sipperman, for joining us. And hey, listen, if you, if you have some things to add, some things that come up next year, feel free to come back. We might even have you come back on a compliance panel where we'll, uh, we'll talk about all the new regulation coming out with a couple of you, uh, you really smart fellas or non-binary gender conforming people, whatever. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment, give us a retweet, follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us.